Romans chapter 1, as we continue our study there. Romans chapter 1, and I'll begin reading in verse 15. So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. So up until this point in the series, the entire purpose of which is to uh, build a foundation and clarify what the foundation for unity in a church ought to be. If your foundation of unity is merely locational, or because we have the type of music or even the flavor of preaching that you prefer, that's not biblical unity. If your unity with your brothers and sisters in Christ is because you happen to live in the same town or enjoy the same sports teams or enjoy the same type of food, that's not biblical unity. The gospel sets the agenda for what our unity ought to be. It must be Christ and his message, his passion. Further, the gospel tells us what it means to be a mature Christian. We're going to see this some in very stark terms today. That you don't begin by the gospel and then uh, get perfected by works or the law. It's always through the gospel. It's always by grace. It is always through faith in the work, the completed work of Jesus on the cross, whereby you're matured as a believer and conformed into His image. You don't shift gears post-conversion. So discipleship is meaningless and actually becomes legalism if we drift from the gospel. And lastly, one of the main reasons we're here in Romans answering the question, how I myself, how you as an individual might come into all of these blessings that Christ gives us, is because we've been in Hebrews. And Hebrews is a very glorious and packed passage of Scripture that details how it is that Christ blesses us, how it is that He helps us as our great high priest. And so there's a question that is begged, how does this apply to me? How is it that Jesus becomes my high priest? How is it that I enter this new covenant with Him? And further, just a few other uh, secondary motivations, but hopefully for you they become primary is I want you to have a reasserted confidence in the gospel. I want to rekindle a passion for this message. It is world-changing. It is not simply one way that people see the world working together. It is not simply one method of salvation that exists out there in the world and we say it's the true one. It is the best message possible. It is the most glorious message in existence. And I want you as a believer, as a person, to reestablish your confidence in that glorious message. I want to also inspire reverence, wonder, and zeal for the glory of the Lord in your hearts. For our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And so today, we're looking at this phrase from verse 17. From faith, for faith, what that means for us. And you might say right now, well, isn't that kind of tone deaf to speak on something like this with all that's going on in the world? Shouldn't you downshift and preach on suffering or how to persevere through trial or something like that? Well, I don't think so. Um, Because... This phrase, from faith for faith, is Paul's answer of how God's saving power, of how God's work in the gospel can apply to you. So I don't know of anything more timely than that. Almost at any time. How is it that God's saving work to you, to individuals, can actually apply to you? 
Regardless of what's going on, that is the most important question. How can I be right with God? How can my children be right with God? How can my neighbors be right with God? Whether we're living in first century times when Christianity is illegal, or we're living during the dark ages when literacy is below 10%, the Black Death is going around, or whether we're living in the 21st century with political, economic, and health chaos and a ton of disagreement on social media about what it even means, the question of how can I be right with God is the number one question. So this phrase, from faith for faith, is important. And it's also fascinating for several reasons. Uh, But before we get to the actual statement and understand what it is Paul is saying by structuring it that way, from faith for faith, we need to answer a more uh, basic question. And I hope you'll follow along with this. We need to answer the question, what does the Bible mean by faith? Okay, Because if we disagree, if we don't know what the Bible is meaning, what Paul is meaning when he says faith, then we won't understand what he's meaning when he says from faith for faith. Okay, So let's let the Bible speak on its own terms and tell us what faith really is. And how we're going to do that first is is talk about what faith is not. Okay, I'm just trying to dismantle a few myths that are out there about faith and say what it's not, and then we'll talk about what it is. First, faith is not a general belief in God. Okay, it's very important. Faith and what we want people to have is not just I believe in God. Okay, James, the younger half brother of our Lord, says it this way. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It does you no good to believe in your heart that there is a God. That gets you nowhere. That actually may make matters worse for you if all you do is believe in your heart that there is a God. If you do not submit to the Lord Jesus Christ Himself, your theology is worthless. Faith is not mere uh, doctrine or belief that there is a Creator. It's not believing in God only. Christianity, if I may be so bold, is about Christ. Okay? It is about the Redeemer, our one and only Savior, the Lord Himself, Jesus of Nazareth. And you've got to understand the tension for first century Jews. They believed in the one true God. And with the coming of Christ, however, It was narrowed. You can't just believe anymore in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You must submit to this one, Jesus Himself. Secondly, faith is not just a happy feeling or a positivity all the time. In any definition of faithfulness or faith or positive or healthy Christianity, your definition should be big enough to include Jesus, okay? And we know from Isaiah 53, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Paul, in the beginning of Romans 9, says, I'm telling the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, my conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow an unceasing anguish in my heart for the sake of my brothers according to the flesh. Faith in God does not mean that you're always happy or positive or just just have faith and it'll be okay and you'll be happy all the time. No, that wasn't Jesus, it wasn't Paul, and you know for certain in your own heart it's not you either. So if you define faith that way, you cut yourself off from believing that you have a healthy relationship with the Lord because if you think faith means the absence of sorrow and the presence of happiness, then most of the time, I would argue, we don't have faith. So thank God that that's not what faith is. Psalm seventy three twenty six. If, if I can commend any chapter to just marinate in and spend time in, it would be Psalm 73. 
My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. You could almost rephrase it to say, my flesh and my heart will fail. Your flesh is going to fail one day. Your heart will fail you. And it's not going to be pretty. I'm sorry. But God can be the strength of your heart, even as we go from death to death. And also, I want you to turn to this one because we'll be uh, here next week, Lord willing. It's Habakkuk chapter 3. It might take you a little time to find. Habakkuk chapter 3. And we'll be here next week because the quotation from Romans 1.17 is from Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 3, beginning in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no fruit, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. Even while there may be quite a number of things going wrong and sorrow be in your heart, even as it was in the heart of our Savior, you can still have faith and hope in the Lord. Further, faith is not a blind leap. Okay? Faith is not a blind leap. Let me say this. This is very important. I think I've mentioned it before, but this is significant for your walk and how you present Christianity to other people. Blind leaps do not honor God. A blind leap of faith doesn't honor Him. And He doesn't want you to trust Him with a blind leap. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. This verse isn't mainly about apologetics as it's come to be used. It's about being able to answer anyone with this question. Why do you trust in Jesus? Why is it that He is your hope and trust? Why have you entrusted all your hopes and all your possessions and yourself and all your personality to Him? Why? Do you have an answer? Is it, well, I just do. I don't have a reason. I just do. It's the best thing out there. I was raised this way. Maybe you have Pascal's wager in your mind. Well, it'd be better if I turn out to be wrong uh, than the risk I would incur by trying to be faithful, right? Like, well, at least if I'm wrong, it's not so bad. But if if it turns out to be true and I decided not to follow Jesus, then it could be really bad. So I'll, I'll just better follow Jesus, just in case. That doesn't honor the Lord at all. Is it something just trite or dishonoring to him? Like, well, I just believe. I just do. I feel it's true. Your answer should be something like this. I trust the Lord. I have entrusted myself to him because he is trustworthy. He is worthy of my trust. He has proved himself over and over and over. My eyes have seen the King. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is screaming that He is worthy of all my life. It's not a blind leap. Further, faith is not merely right doctrine. You should have right doctrine. (laughs) Hopefully, if you've been here for any time, you know that doctrine is very important to me. However, faith is not merely, is not only right doctrine. And you can go to the Revelation to John, chapter 2, if you want to. should be a familiar passage to you. Revelation 2, 
beginning in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Doctrine's really important to them. They're testing everyone. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works that you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. They have good theology. They've got good practice. But his message to them is repent. And if you don't, I'm going to take away your lampstand. You won't be a church anymore. Return to your first Love. So that begins to expose to us what faith really is, but we'll get to that in a second. But for now, just know that real faith in God isn't having only, isn't merely having all your theological categories right. The enemy can dance circles around you in theology. Believe me. And there are many um, who have much right theology Um, and are like the Ephesians in this passage and just have no desire, love, or cherishing of the Lord. Faith is not just having all of your boxes checked correctly. You should, and you need it, in order to know who God is. We're going to talk about that in a little bit. But it's not just that. Next, faith is not merely... It's not only just trying to live your life for Jesus. Okay? Faith in Jesus is not merely just trying to live your life for Jesus. This is what him, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And if he just stopped talking, we might think, well, okay, all I have to do is just make sure I keep the commandments of Jesus and do things for him and live my life for him. But he keeps going. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Doing ministry in the name of Jesus, confident that they know Him, hell-bound. It's chilling. It's, it's mind-boggling. Faith in Christ means something different than just trying to do things for Jesus. And lastly, I hope I've done enough in my ministry here with you to have earned your trust so that I can say something like this. Faith is not just asking Jesus to come into your heart or praying a specific set of words. And I do want you to turn here. We go to Romans 10. Romans 10, beginning in verse 8. Romans 10, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This isn't the same thing as asking Jesus to come into your heart. And it's not the same thing as saying, I want to go to heaven, I'm sorry for sinning, please come in. It's almost completely different. So what is it? It's seeing and knowing Him as Lord. The resurrected, immortal Son of God. What's happening, what is happening in the heart in this text? I mean, just let the text speak for yourself. It's not you asking Jesus to do something here. It is believing here that He is objectively Lord. So the deepest cry of your heart, He is Lord. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead and He is Lord. That is faith. There's always this same pattern. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Any preaching of the Gospel in the New Testament from Jesus' mouth Himself or the apostles is repent and believe. Now, there is prayer in the New Testament, and Paul says it this way, that Christ would dwell in your hearts through faith. So it is true, we have communion with God, but here's the crazy thing. He prays that for people who are already born again. So I'll just leave that with you there. That's a different sermon, and it's fantastic and marvelous, but asking for Jesus to do that isn't biblical faith for conversion. So, We've seen what faith is not. Let's talk about biblically what it is. What is biblical faith? First, it's important to clarify that true biblical faith in Jesus is built on correct theology. Okay, Even though that's not all that faith is, it must be built on correct theology. You remember the story with Peter and his confession? Jesus is praying, the disciples are with with him, and then Jesus turns to them and asks, who do the people say that I am? Some say the prophets, some say that you're John the Baptist, brought back from the dead, some say that you're a reincarnated Elijah. Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? Peter answers, you are the Christ Son of the living God. Blessed are you, Peter, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven has revealed this to you. And I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The church is built on the confession of who Jesus is. It must be built on correct theology. Think of the absurdity of saying that you have faith in Jesus if you don't believe that God created the world. Or the absurdity of believing that Jesus is Lord and not believing that He rose from the dead bodily. Or not believing that He's coming back one day like He said. Think of the absurdity of believing that Jesus is Lord and not believing at the same time that He was sinless and perfect. These are all theological issues, and you have to have these straight in order for your faith to mean anything. Jesus can't just be for you a heavenly Santa Claus who helps you in time of need. He's Lord, and that means something, and He will be judged one day. The silliness and absurdity of faith without believing that is very, very high. If He's just Lord and He helps you and He he comes and gives you meaning and purpose, but He's not coming one day to rule in righteousness, the faith is meaningless. So, faith must be built on correct theology. Secondly, biblical faith is trusting in Jesus. Okay, I'm gonna, This is the second one. I'm going to give you a total of seven, and each of them begin with this phrase, trusting in Jesus, because I'm trying to underscore that. It is trusting in Jesus Christ, built on correct theology, and now trusting in Jesus Christ, shown and proven by repentance. That this trust in Christ results in something, a changed lifestyle. You could just go to all of 1 John to see this. If you say you love God while you walk in darkness, you lie. 
and do not practice the truth. You go to James, the faith without works is dead. But let's look at this passage specifically, Luke chapter 6. Luke chapter 6, beginning in verse 46. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? You understand the tension with this question? You call me Lord and you're not willing to do what I command. Your, your confession that I am Lord is obviously invalidated by your lifestyle. You want to fit in with those who are calling me Lord, but you're not willing to live the way that I command. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built on the rock. But the one who hears and does not do them is like the man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Last week, we discussed how the gospel reveals the righteousness of God, right? That's the preceding phrase. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And one of the ways that the gospel reveals the righteousness of God is that it creates a people who hunger and thirst for righteousness and also have the ability to live righteously. Think of the abomination that it would be if salvation in the one true God meant that nothing changed about your life. That He gives you the righteousness of Christ, gives you the Spirit, and then you have no desire whatsoever to live holy lives that please Him. It would be a rank abomination. It must result in that. And understand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that faith is obedience. I'm saying true faith is proven by obedience. Okay? It is fruit. You will know them by their fruits. Test them by their fruits. Your confession that Jesus is Lord must be backed up by a changed life. Third, trusting uh, biblical faith is trusting in Jesus for forgiveness. Okay? Hopefully this one goes without saying, but if you want to, if you're still in Luke, turn to Luke 24. And these are not the only places that these points could be made. These, these are everywhere in the New Testament and in the Old Testament as well. Luke 24, verse 44. And this is Luke's part one of the Great Commission. Okay, we, we have, we have uh, the Great Commission that we're all familiar with in Matthew chapter 28. This is Luke's version of the Great Commission, uh, part one, and then he gives the second part in Acts 1, verse 8 and surrounding. So this, this is what he says, verse 44. And he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. The scriptures proclaim that the Christ would suffer, that he would die, that he would be buried, that he would rise from the dead, and the scriptures also declared that this message would be proclaimed, that there is repentance now that leads to the forgiveness of sins. It's not good news at all if all that Jesus does is go and prove that he's Lord. We're going to talk about that in a bit. That's bad news if you can't be reconciled to him. If he does not forgive us of our sins, if that message of forgiveness is not proclaimed, we're in big trouble if Jesus is Lord. Since Jesus is Lord. 
So the gospel, for it to be good news, it must deal with our sins. So believing in Christ, in a biblical sense, having faith in Jesus, is that He alone is the one who forgives sin. He alone is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. This was the issue with the Jews, at least in one place, that Jesus says to the lame man before He heals him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And they grumble in their hearts. And Jesus knows their thoughts and he says, so that you may know that the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, rise up and walk. And you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He came to deal with sins. The reason the Son of Man appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. So biblical faith is trusting in Jesus alone for the forgiveness of sins. Further, it is also trusting in Jesus for righteousness. It's not enough just to be forgiven of sins. We talked about this last week, but it bears repeating. You can't hear it enough. This is the heartbeat of the gospel that Jesus gives you his righteousness. And faith in Jesus means you are trusting in him For his righteousness, not just that he would make you live righteously, but that he credits his righteousness to you. That his righteous life counts as yours. You can see this in Philippians 3. Just go ahead and turn there. This is a series on the gospel. I want you to be familiar with the passages that are most significant and influential in our understanding of what the gospel is. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness of God that depends on faith. This is the essence of the good news, that not only does Christ forgive you of your sins, but you are declared, you are made, you are counted righteous in Christ through faith. And it's not just that you have positive thoughts about God and that God then credits you righteousness. It's that you are truly believing in Him and in His sacrifice and His life for righteousness. Here again we see this dominant theme of in Christ. Going back to the idea that it's not just praying a prayer asking Jesus to do things internally. It's that you might be found in Him This is said almost 90 times in the New Testament, in Christ. And that's not counting all the times that it says it this way, in Him. Salvation is being clothed in the righteousness of Christ. The beating heart of your faith is not Him inside me, but trusting in Him so that you are found in Him. Why is this a big deal? Why am I I revisiting this, talking about this? Here's an example why this is such a big deal. Where is the center of salvation? That's an odd question, but we're humans. We need analogies. We need helpful categories to pack things nicely. Where is the center of salvation? Is it here? If it's here, then it's subjective. And if I don't feel very well one day, or I don't feel very close to God, or I don't have any evidences on an emotional level that he's working in me, if I say like David, why are you so far off from me? Then maybe I feel like salvation doesn't apply. But if salvation, if the center of salvation is in Christ, then if I am found in him, then there is no loss. Whatever I may feel subjectively in my own heart. Many of us have had doubts about our salvation, myself included. But here's the comfort. If the center of salvation is in Christ, not necessarily here, 
then it's not about the quality of your faith or the sincerity or how tightly or how powerfully you you exert your mind to believe certain things. It's in the quality or the sureness of your Savior. It's the righteousness of the Redeemer in whom you trust. Also, biblical faith is trusting in Jesus as Lord. Trusting in Jesus as Lord. We can go back to Romans now. I apologize that we're going over so many places, but it's, it's so crucial that we understand what the Bible means when the biblical authors say faith. Romans 10, back to the passages that we discussed. We already saw this. Verse 10, for with the heart, I'm sorry, verse 8 through 9. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. The word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. This is what Peter says at Pentecost. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain That God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the, that's the, that's the point of his whole sermon. That's the conclusion. That, that's, that's his invitation. Let all the house of Israel therefore know that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And they're cut to the heart. Jesus is Lord is in many ways a good summary of all the good and the bad news of the gospel. What I mean by that is, since He's Lord, that means if we are not right with Him, if we do not live up to His expectations, then we're in big trouble. But it is also the good news because this one who is Lord is also the one who died to reconcile us to God. And again, just, just consider the absurdity of saying you believe in Jesus if you don't see Him as Lord. You have to chuck out probably two-thirds of the Gospels and most of the letters of Paul. I mean, this is the point, is it not? That we are brought into a saving relationship with God so that we would do good works unto the glory of the Lord. And it means more than just seeing him as Lord in, in like a, a headship sense that he's in charge. He's the boss, right? One of the ways I talk to Zoe, my daughter, about Jesus is that Jesus is in charge of everything. You can go down the list. I've mentioned this before. Is he in charge of, of clothes? Yes, Jesus is in charge of clothes. Is he in charge of trampolines? Yes, Jesus is in charge of trampolines. He's in charge of everything. But it means a little bit more than just being the boss or in charge. Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. When the New Testament authors apply the title Lord to Jesus, it means so much more than just boss. It means nothing less than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jesus is Lord. He's the Almighty the wonderful, mighty Counselor, the Creator of all things, the Lord of hosts. This one, the I Am, is the one who died. He had no beginning, no end, and there's no limit to His power, no measure of His wisdom. This is the audacious and glorious center of the Christian religion. The omnipotent, omnipresent, omniscient one, the only God, he took on flesh, became a man, and yet is still the Almighty. He is always the I Am, from before all time and now and forever. And dear friend, let the glory of his passion and death in your place earn your full allegiance. That it wasn't some great or righteous person merely who died for you. It was Yahweh. 
He is worthy of all your praise, all your energy, all your life. This is faith. Believing that Jesus of Nazareth is the Lord. Do you sense the majesty of the one you say, He is my Savior? Do you sense His power and magnitude and glory? Or is He for you the one who's inside a glass box to break in case of emergency? Break in case of corona? Break in case of financial distress? Break in case of cancer? He's the Lord. The encounter with Moses on the mountain. Who shall I say to them sent me? What is your name, essentially? I am who I am. I will be who I will be. He had no beginning. And all time, from eternity past to eternity future, is is as a point before him, and he comprehends it all, and all possibilities, and all actions, and energy, and matter within it, without any effort. This is Jesus. That's the claim of faith, that Jesus, this one who walked among us, is in fact that one, the God who is there. There's only one holy one. And so faith, trusting Him as Lord, is entrusting of the whole self to Christ. It has so many practical implications. Trusting in Jesus, uh, faith, biblical faith is also trusting in Jesus through trial. This is especially pertinent for us today. Revelation 12, 10 through 11. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accused them night and day before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. You go to James again. We were talking about this in the youth Sunday school class. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Second Timothy 3.12 Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I wonder how many of you actually believe that. That what it means to follow Jesus is not that sometimes bad things might happen and we need to trust Jesus in them, but by trusting Jesus, you incur the rage of the enemy and the world and your own flesh, and so trials and even persecutions are inevitable and will only increase. That's Jesus' promise to you. And in fact, it is tethered to our salvation. All of these blessings come to us, and then Paul says, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we may be glorified with Him. Turn to Romans 5. This is one I I hope will just stay with you. Beginning in verse 3. We'll we'll just start in verse one. There's, there's, it's impossible <laughs> to pick and choose from Paul. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. You can just circle that with God, not necessarily with the world, not necessarily with your friends and family, not necessarily with your employer, not necessarily with viruses that go around. You don't have peace with anything else because of the gospel. You have peace with God and with the sons of God. We have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. 
Knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You can see this also in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Those who are called according to His purpose. Faith in Jesus or trusting in Him reinterprets all of our trials. Not just the ones that you're prepared to handle well. The ones that take you by surprise. The ones that you didn't see coming. The ones that you prayed and hoped would never come to you. The ones you prepared over and over and over to deal with if they would come, but you find that when they come, they are worse or different than you expected. During this time, this is a question we all need to ask ourselves. Are we, as believers in Jesus, if we say we have faith in Him, are we doing a good job of showing the world that He is our hope and trust? Lastly, Biblical faith in Jesus is trusting in Jesus Christ as the only treasure. You can have everything else that I've mentioned, but if at the bottom of your heart you want something else most, not Jesus Himself, it's not real faith. And then all the other things that you thought were okay with your faith in Him will eventually crumble as you find that ultimately what you want is comfort. Ultimately what you want is acceptance. Ultimately what you want is a kind of life that you have prepared for yourself. Ultimately what you want is is eternal life in heaven even. And streets of gold and a mansion and all that stuff. If Jesus is not the treasure at the bottom of all of that, then it's not faith. How could you believe in Him as Lord, the I Am, and He not be the number one desire of your heart? Christ Himself is the pearl of great price. He is the treasure hidden in the field, for which a man will sell everything he owns in order to buy. And understand, this gives us great freedom and joy in Christ. That ultimately it's not about getting everything correct and making sure we're in line perfectly, but at the heart of it, it's do you want Jesus Christ? Not do you want His benefits and His blessings, but want Him. You can see this in so many places. There are hundreds, literally, but let's go to Hebrews. Keep some connection to that book as we... I've paused our study there. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. And here's how this passage is usually interpreted. See, Jesus saw the joy that was coming for Him, so we need to behave like Jesus and endure like He did. While that is true, that's not all the author of Hebrews is saying. Look very closely. How is it that Jesus endured the shame and the suffering of the cross? He looked to the joy that he would gain. So what is the joy that we are explicitly told to look to in this text? To Jesus. We've seen it already in Philippians 3. In order that I may gain Christ. I want him. I want to know him. I want to be found in him. And then obviously that means all the blessings of salvation cascade towards your heart and it will change everything. 
But the heartbeat is a desire for Him. I want to end, believe it or not, I plan to get to so much more. <laughs> but I'll end with this as, a, as an encouragement. As we've looked at, and this has been important, it's not been spending too much time on this. This is crucial for you, especially as we try to invite others into faith. What are we asking them to do? What are we wanting them to believe? What is faith? What is it not? It's an important question. So we'll get to the actual statement from faith for faith next week, but I want to end with an encouragement to you. This is not from me. It's one of the the pastors I uh, have listened to in the past. Um, Encourage me. I hope it will encourage you. As I've explained the difference between false faith and true faith, some of you might be really discouraged. Um, At least I can be in the face of what the Bible says and expects of us versus what we find to be true in our hearts. But here's the encouragement. There are actually multiple levels of desire. Okay? So as I listed all the uh, characteristics of true biblical faith, you may, you may have resonated with every single one. Yes, amen. This is what I find to be the case in my heart right now. And if so, praise the Lord. Some of us, maybe most of us, realize that the, I'm not there I sometimes am, but I'm, I'm wanting to be there. That's also honoring to the Lord. That is at the center, the heart of faith and the work of the Holy Spirit to make you desire to both will and to do His good pleasure. That He is working even to make you desire the things that you know are better. That honors Him. And let's say you're even a step back further, that you don't necessarily want those things. You find in your heart a deep lack of desire even for those things as we went through the biblical characteristics of faith. I I don't even know if in my heart I want those things the right way that I should. They're definitely not there, and I'm not sure I want them enough. Because it definitely doesn't result that way in my actions. But I want to want them. That's the work of the Spirit as well. And that honors Him, that even though you see inadequacy in your own heart, our confidence is not in what we feel or think, but in the righteousness of our Savior. So even as He is working in us to birth this God-honoring faith in us, even if you're two degrees removed from it, it still honors the Lord. So take courage. God is at work. And the clarity of this text, just to kind of set us up for Next week is this. From faith, or out of faith, and into faith. Begins with faith, it ends with faith. Never stops being by faith that we are connected to our Lord Jesus Christ, that we are found in Him. So if today you know that you are not in Christ... May today be the day of salvation. If this is completely foreign to you and you don't want it at all, pray that the Lord would give you these desires. If you are one degree removed or two degrees removed, pray that the Spirit would work and that He would inspire you and rekindle in your heart a desire to know the Lord this way. But regardless, trust in Him today. Trust in Him fully. Cast yourself upon the mercies of Christ today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all that you've done. We thank you most of all for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, the Lord. We pray that we would trust in Him. Even as life is vicious and violent, as life is very unpredictable, Questions arise in our hearts, and even our own hearts condemn us. I pray that you would reassert our trust in your Son. That he would truly this day be our hope and trust. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.